Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Command Space on the 5x5 Network. My name is Mike Hurley. Today I'm joined by Jesse Thorne of Maximum Fun and NPR and many, many other places all over the media world. But before we get into today's discussion with Jesse, I just want to take a very quick moment to thank our fine sponsors over at Squarespace. Squarespace, who give you absolutely everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace.com provide you with a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website, blog, or portfolio. It doesn't matter how experienced you are with building websites, you can put something online in just minutes without having to worry about hosting, scaling, or integrating with social services like Twitter and Facebook. They have a great page building system called layout engine it allows you to create custom layouts for your pages in seconds and these pages will can be used with squarespace's beautiful themes and templates they're very clean they let your content do all of the talking and will make your site look fantastic they also all feature responsive web design so every template with squarespace will look fantastic on all devices doesn't matter how big the screen is they have Squarespace Commerce that lets you add a fully integrated store into your website to sell physical or digital goods. They have built-in statistics, great iOS and Android apps, 24-7 customer support, and much, much more. Go check them out now. Go to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels. That's the URL you want. That's 70-D-E-C-I-B-E-L-S. And you can sign up for a free trial there. Squarespace plans start at $10 a month and use the code 70 decibels 6 at checkout and you will get 10% off your first order. Now let's get on with the show. Today I'm joined by Jesse Thorne. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. Having a nice refreshing glass of water with me so i'm ready to go i have some strawberry ribena which is a a british drink um which is basically like strawberry cordial i'm pretty sure you made that up i'm pretty sure i did too but you will never know (laughs) you have to do really weird google searches later jesse please tell our listeners what you like to be known for Oh, you know, I'm. I like to be known as a, you know, at like a party or something like that. Whatever I'll you want. Be a public radio host. <laughs> Either and anything's fine by me. Yeah, well, I mean, the the problem is that if you start getting involved in, here's the thing. I I when I hired my uh, my producer on my public radio show Bullseye to move out to Los Angeles from Chicago, he had one last trip to the dentist on his dental insurance that he had for his previous job. And he sent me this email, and all it said in the email was, have you ever tried explaining podcasting to your dentist? (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why I usually stick with public radio host. But I own a network of podcasts uh, called MaximumFun.org, and I also uh, run a menswear blog and video series called Put This On. And, you know, in addition to those things, I've hosted the occasional television and on and so forth. Yeah, I guess rather than being just a podcaster, the fact that you have um, other other types of media in in places where people would understand makes it easier for you because you can say the public radio, right? Where a podcaster just be like, "I'm a podcaster," and then you get that really weird look. <laughs> That's a topic. I, I host a comedy show with a good friend of mine, Jordan Morris, who's a comedy writer here in LA, and um, we <laughs> we all often talk about the look that your uncle gives you when when they ask you how your podcasting business is going. Uh, it's, it's not an approving look. I think they would prefer that you were going into plastics. <laughs> it's that alien thing that you do, right? Alien pods or something? Yeah, exactly. So how did you find your way into, into broadcasting and podcasting? 
I started uh, I my public radio show now, Bullseye, started as The Sound of Young America and started as my college radio show when I was, I think, 19, maybe 20. I haven't done the math, but um, I, I went to UC Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz, California, and I don't know, I was just listening to the campus radio station, and I thought, I wonder how they do that. And I imagined something a lot more complicated than actually... Uh, makes than what actually makes radio. I went. I remember going up to the radio station for a tour. You know, it was this campus radio station. They welcome volunteers and stuff like that. And thinking like, oh, that's all there is. It's just one guy um, on some equipment that looks like it's from 1975. I can handle this. And so, yeah, I started my show my my sophomore year of college, and essentially have just kept doing it. Do you think that's like? the core of why you know you're a successful broadcaster now is because you just never gave up <laughs> well i mean i i think there are those who might dispute your characterization of me as a successful broadcaster <laughs> but um uh yeah i mean i you know my mom's my mom's best friend when i was growing up used to always say persistence is the key to success um in my case you know i sort of tried to give up a few times you know, I tried to get a job and just couldn't get one. And then I just figured, well, if nobody's going to give me a job, I still have to eat. <laughs> and so I kind of built a business around what, what I was already doing. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's worked out. But it, took, it really took 10 years, um, the better part of 10 years anyway, for me to get to the point where I was making a real middle-class wage. But at this point, if a few years after that, you know, I just bought a house in Los Angeles. So it's, um, you know, I, I actually am doing okay. I still have way too many jobs and work way too much. But, um, but I have managed to put together, a, you know, a more of a middle class living than, than either of my parents ever had. So now, I guess, would it be safe to say your, your main gig is your network, Maximum Fun? I think I spend, I would, I would estimate that I spend maybe three, two or three days a week working on my public radio show, Bullseye. Uh, two or three days a week working on network-related things. Um, maybe half a day a week or a day a week working on my comedy shows, uh, Jordan Jesse Go and Judge John Hodgman. And then maybe another day or two a week uh, working on, put this on, my menswear blog which I know adds up to like nine days a week, but um, that's basically the amount of work that I'm doing. <laughs> you just push in the weeks on, like you just, you consider a week to be nine days and you'll just deal with the, the rest later, right? Uh, I'm also working on one of those uh, Buckminster Fuller uh, crazy sleep schedules where you sleep for like 10 minutes every two hours or whatever. I've got, I've also got a, a journal where I mark, where I have a grid where I mark all my uh, all my virtues for the day, like Benjamin Franklin. Mm -hmm. I've got a really complex system of weights and measures. And then, it, and then all you need to do is just nail lucid dreaming, and then you can record in your sleep too. Oh my God, that would be amazing! <laughs> I would I would dream that I was a much better radio host than I actually am. <laughs> so, how did Maximum Fun come to be? Well, I, what happened essentially was I, after I graduated from college, I kept doing my show on my college radio station. And I'm from San Francisco, so I was driving between San Francisco and Santa Cruz, which is you know, a 90-ish minute drive. I also didn't own a car at the time, so I was borrowing my mom's car. Eventually, I got it together to buy a car, and I, I switched from the local 
uh, from my college radio station to the local public radio station, which meant that I could just send them the show. I didn't have to drive down there because they had someone to run the board. At the college radio station, I was running the board and I had to be physically present in case there was an earthquake and the emergency broadcast system went on. But at the, uh, at the regular public radio station, I could just make the show at home. So I sold my car, bought some equipment to basically put together a little studio in my house and did the show from home. And I still wasn't really making any money. And then in 2006 or so, which was about three years after I graduated from college, I moved to Los Angeles. And mostly because my wife was going to law school here, um, but also because I knew that I would have to live in L.A. if I wanted to work in the entertainment industry. And... I had some freelance gigs. I used to be the substitute host for the Slate Daily Podcast, thanks to the kindness of uh, Andy Bowers, who runs the podcast at Slate. I did a few. I did some book PR for my friends Casper Hauser, but basically, I just needed to get together money, and um, and I decided to make my show donation supported in the sort of classic public radio model, and. I figured in order to do that, it would be better if I had a variety of shows together under one banner than if I was just trying to ask people to support one show. And um, so I started, an, I started a comedy show with, with Jordan, who um, used to do The Sound of Young America with me when we were in college, my radio show. And, um, you know, I just sort of put together the pieces. I started a podcast for Casper Hauser, the guys who'd hired me to do book publicity for them. I started a podcast with this guy, Mal Sharp, who this, was this comedian in San Francisco in the 60s who did, with his partner, James Coyle, did these amazing street put-on things in the 60s before they were the 60s. I mean, I'm talking about 1963, 1964. And so then all of a sudden I had a podcast network. It's funny how they creep up on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. I was just talking with my dentist about that the other day. <laughs> So um, you mentioned about listener supporting and you recently wrote a great post about this called Why is Maximum Fun Listener Supported that I'll put in the show notes for this episode, which people can find at 5x5.tv slash cmdspace, so command space slash 47. And um, you, you've kind of alluded to it here a little bit, but um, do you think that it is your, your background in public radio that instilled the values of the fact that you like to have listener support? with maximum fun honestly i think that i to some extent that's true yes um but i think uh, i i think also that i went into public radio because public radio was the place on the mass media landscape that best reflected the values that i was bringing to it you know i mean i've worked in commercial television as well and um you know i've done other things um put this on for example the blog is is advertiser supported but Basically, what it was about was the fact that I, I, w I, you know, I didn't go into the media business because I wanted to maximize the amount of money I was making. Um, you know, <laughs> if I wanted to maximize the amount of money I could make, I would have gone into a different business. I don't know what it would have been, but something else besides making podcasts. The reason I went into this business is because there was a kind of there, there was something that I really believed in that I wanted to make. And the business side was essentially how can I support myself so that I can do this for real professionally rather than as a sideline. And 
I ended up with a donation support model, essentially because in podcasting, especially six years ago um, or seven years ago, you know there was there were no advertisers, and to the extent that there were advertisers, they wanted to make advertorial content, or they wanted to sponsor a show with a really specific market of things that were being sold. You know, I think Leo Laporte was able to build, for example, was able to build a, a tech podcasting network, basically because a tech companies understood what podcasts were because they were tech companies, and b because you know people who listen to tech shows are buying computers or peripherals or software all the time and they need a specific venue in which to advertise those there that doesn't exist for the arts <laughs> you sure. know so um so you know I, I we're not exclusively uh donor supported but it's the bulk of our support and ultimately the reason why is that i would rather be making something where my objective is to have the passionate support of an audience rather than having the objective be the passionate support of marketers. Yeah, because you know, you're, you're, you would never be beholden um, to an advertiser. And you know, at 5 by 5 we, we, we try our best and, you know, to pick the right people and the, and the right sponsors that, that work for us. And I know that before I joined 5 by 5 and I, I had my own smaller podcast network, I turned down some, some people that wanted to sponsor with us because they didn't fit for me. Um, so I get, uh, but I guess you never even have to consider that so much, really, you know, because you have a a stream of support and, and finance that comes through, irrespective of any advertisers that you do take. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, the the easy example of an advertiser that we turn down is my father is a Navy veteran and um, served in the the beginning of the Vietnam War. He actually didn't. Uh, his his carrier was actually bombing Cambodia and Laos, so the Vietnam the Vietnam War is a bit of a misnomer. But you know the war in Southeast Asia, and um, and has struggled with post traumatic stress disorder his entire life, um, and spent m- much of the twenty years after the war as a as a veterans activist and veterans peace activist, and. My and we got an offer for it was a pretty good amount of money actually uh, for a sponsorship, a recruiting sponsorship from the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they knew and wanted to rub it in. That's, yeah, that's it, such a strange. Yeah, that's very strange. But you know, when you think about it, the podcast audience you're talking about, you know, tech savvy young males, particularly five years ago or whenever this was, sure. and you know, that's an audience that the that the Navy really hopes to reach, and they can only buy so many ads and basketball games. You know what I mean? Sure. So, um, and I was able to turn them down, and uh, you know, obviously, I, I value. I, I I don't mean to speak ill of the armed forces or anything. As I mentioned, my my father's a veteran, but the um, you know, it just wasn't something that I wanted to to take advertisements from, and it was a very easy decision for me to say no to that because I knew that that advertising, you know, when we have advertising, which we do sometimes, um, it's great, but um, but I don't ever have to compromise myself uh, to do it. I mean, I know from you know from running a menswear website. I know exactly how venal advertisers and marketers can be, especially when they work for big brands uh, that are gross. And, you know, and especially when, 
frankly, so much of online media is so desperate to kowtow to them and has no values at all worth speaking of. Um, and so, you know, it's nice to know that at the end of the day, I'm getting paid by the people who like my show rather than that I'm getting paid by, you know, s some guy that, that wants to sell soap flakes. I can imagine it's a, it's a nice feeling when, you know, you look at the, the bank statement or whatever and you see that the money there is a direct, like, yes, we love you. Yeah, it it really is. I mean, it's, sometimes it's, I mean, it's also hard to ask for money. I mean, I don't yeah. mean to, you know, like, I, I don't mean to say that it's all, that it's all peachy keen. I mean, it's always difficult to ask, ask for someone to voluntarily give you money because, you, there's there's always a moment when you feel like oh gosh I'm just begging, but I what I do is when when I have that feeling I remind myself of two things. One is I could the alternative is to charge for the show, and I don't want to charge for the show. I would rather I, I don't want to make I I don't want to prevent people from enjoying it if they don't have the means or even if they don't have the will to support it. Um, so that's a, and B is. I mean, ultimately, you know, when when you're doing something like this, you know, is we're transparent. You know, people know we're not a charity. They know that what they're what they're the transaction for them is they care about this thing and they want it to exist and they understand that it can only exist and especially can only exist in the form that it does if it's a professional operation. And so they are serving their own self-interest by giving us whatever, five bucks a month or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's a new kind of transaction. You know, it's, it's something that didn't really exist before the internet, voluntary payment for a for-profit thing. Um, but I'm honestly, I'm, I, I'm happy to do it this way. I, I like it this way. So every year you have a pledge drive. Um, am I right in thinking it's once a year? Yeah, it's once a year. We may, we, at some point in the future, we may change that, but but we've done it once a year for the last six years or seven years or whatever. So this is for like a, a set period of time. You will be on the shows devoting um, some time to talking about you know how how maximum fun is supported um and you will be offering up some um additional benefits for people to sign up um including you know um some longer shows and some additional show content and some physical goods as well so tell me a little bit about the pledge driver has it always been around and has it you know grown in 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 it, what you try and do with it every year yeah i mean i started uh, you know, I started just by putting up a donation button on my website, just like everyone else in 2005 or 2006. Um, the truth is that putting up a donation button on your website is a really ineffective way to ask people for money um, because it becomes transparent to people almost immediately. A. B. Podcast listeners aren't, are typically not visiting your website all that much. Uh C, you know, it's it's a very weak call to action. Like basically, the difference between someone do to get into nonprofit stuff for a minute, um, which I know a little bit about because I used to work at nonprofits, and my dad 
was a uh, development consultant, uh, fundraising consultant for nonprofits for, for most of my childhood and young adulthood. Um, but basically, you know, the big difference between someone donating and not donating isn't so much the pain that they're going to feel from giving up the money because usually people don't, uh, usually people don't give up more money than they can afford to give up. Um, what it's actually about usually is the kind of hassle of getting up, going over to the computer, getting up, going, picking up the phone and dialing the number and telling the person your credit card number or whatever it is, right? Whatever the transactional cost of it is. It's, people are really, really reluctant to involve themselves in any kind of hassle. And so you have to have a really clear call to action, just as, just as you would in, in selling something. You have to have a really clear call to action that brings people through that process and out to the end. And, and then at the end, you know, they get to feel really good because they, they um, you know, they didn't take a huge financial hit for the reason that I just mentioned. And they get to feel like, oh, I'm a part of this. I supported this. I'm part of why I get to enjoy this. And then when they enjoy it, they think like, oh, you know, this is partly built on, on the money that I gave. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so the pledge drive is a way to say, now is the time. This is the time to do it. It's time limited. This is, this is when we do this thing. And it's also a way for us to reach out to people on the platform that they're engaged with us on, which is our podcast. So we're talking to them directly um, rather than doing, you know, trying to send out emails. You know, we're not an email company. We're a, we're a podcast company. So the place for us to ask for money is on our podcasts. <laughs> the thank you gifts and stuff like that, like we do do, just like a public radio station, we, we give out thank you gifts and we do have a little bit of extra bonus content that you can access if you're a donor. Um, honestly, like if you're like a if if you're technically minded and you want to try and access that content without you know without our um, without giving us any money, you totally I'm sure you can. I bet it's up on torrent sites. I've never searched for it, but I bet it's up on torrent sites. And and frankly, it's not even password protected or anything. Um, what that's really about is just to give people some tangible thing that they can that helps them feel that connection between the money that they're giving and, and what they're getting for it. Yeah, like some you know even though people are supporting you there is something to be said for having a token for that that actual transaction that you've made. Yeah, I mean if you think of the business model of of Tom's shoes which frankly my, I keep talking about my dad's career, but my dad spent a long, long time working in international development, and the, the model of Tom's shoes has, is really deeply problematic. However, that having been said, one of the things that people like is that they, they're making a charitable contribution, but they're getting a, they're getting a symbol of that charitable contribution uh, that they're making, or at least that they think they're making, because it's deeply problematic. Maybe I should be using a different metaphor. <laughs> Rather than needing to preface it. <laughs> Yeah, the disabled veterans of America send out um, uh, return address labels, or you know, so does the um, American Cancer Society. Uh, you know, they send out return ad address labels with your name on it, and the reason isn't because people are going to get at those and then send in the value of a set of return address labels. It's just because people like to ha have a thing that is a symbol of the good thing that they did. So you can you can be happy. It gives you that warm feeling inside. I think when it comes through the post. 
So, exactly. And you know, and especially when it's something like a t-shirt or something like that, or, you know, <laughs> we sent out uh, brand, <laughs> branded sex devices this year. But like, <laughs> when it's, it's something that indicates that you're part of this group, you know, because we really think of our, of our show's listeners as a community, you know, that are engaged in, in real life and on the web and so on and so forth with each other as well as with us. And it's also a very significant symbol that, hey, I'm part of this group. Just like, you know, it's the reason why people put morning show bumper stickers on the back of their car. You know, they're, they're not getting paid to advertise this morning show. They just want to say, this is part of who I am. Just the same reason you wear a band t-shirt. I would like to think, though, that donors of a certain level wouldn't be able to publicize too widely with some of the gifts from this year's pledge drive. <laughs> you, would, you would hope that that would stay at least with, between two people. There was a lot of controversy uh, this year at Max FunCon, our annual sort of get-together conference convention thing. Um, we put Max Fun Rocket Lube personal lubricant in everyone's uh, gift bags. And there was a lot of controversy because it came in uh, bottles that were just too big to take on an airplane. So people were trying to decide whether they should mail themselves some personal lubricant or check their luggage or what. <laughs> I don't really have much to go against that other than talking about Max FunCon. So this is a convention that you that you put on um, for the fans of the Maximum Fun Network. Sort of. I mean, it's like I I feel like when you call it if if you which I mean one is uh, when I when people ask me what the con stands for, I usually pretentiously say convocation um, <laughs> rather than convention or conference, simply because convention and conference suggest things in people's minds that are very different from what MaxFunCon is. Basically, MaxFunCon is a long weekend. It goes Friday through Sunday um, in the mountains here in Southern California in, a, in a, a, an early 20th century hunting lodge turned family summer camp. Um, so it's sort of like, it's nice accommodations, but rustic. And um, it's a combination of like a like a writer's retreat if you imagine like a writer's retreat and a comedy festival and it's about creativity and making things so there are speakers there are big comedy shows with big name comedians um and then there are classes where you do everything from learning to write a song to um you know this year pendleton ward who's a friend of mine who makes the uh, television show adventure time uh, and a friend of his did directed a stop motion animated superhero film starring Max FunCon attendees in ridiculous costumes. Yeah. <laughs> the, cul- the the culmination of which was um, I tore my shirt open. I had a tinfoil third nipple <laughs> that led everyone to bleed from their eyes and ears. And the blood was because it was so beautiful. I guess was the premise. I don't know. I haven't seen the finished product yet. <laughs> but, but the but the blood was uh, red yarn because you know it was stop motion animated. Sure. So that's the kind of stuff that goes on at Max FunCon. It's a very distinctive place. I mean, ultimately, what it's about, and like like all of these things, ultimately, what it's about is the connections between the people who go. You know, like they're not all. They're not exclusively, you know, it's, we have some of our shows, but not all of the stuff like comes from our world or whatever. Um, you know, to the extent that they're fans of ours, it's mostly just 
because we are promoting to that group of people. But it's it's about bringing these kind of creative professionals together and amateurs together to, to kind of to celebrate this community of people who are who are making stuff together and and trying to be better, more creative people. Now I sound like Tony Robbins. I apologize for that. One of my um, favorite episodes of the You Look Nice Today um, podcast was recorded at Max FunCon. Yeah, Scott, Scott, and and Merlin and Adam are are regular Max FunCon guests. Merlin Merlin gave a talk uh, at the at the first Max FunCon, I think. That was his first. It was the first time he talked publicly, generally about doing creative work and managing time and attention in that context. And um, yeah, I mean, they're they're all really good friends. Actually, Scott um, is going to come out to BoatParty.biz, a.k.a. the Atlantic Ocean Comedy Festival, um, which we're putting on on a cruise ship in the fall. Scott's been doing stand-up, so um, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, this is an interesting one. There seems to be a lot more cruises happening now. <laughs> well, it's funny. It, tur- it turns out that... Um, you know, when we were looking at convention spaces for Match, Max FunCon, what we realized is, A, a hotel, a hotel ballroom is so, so, so lame, like so consistently lame. And also just the things that you do at just a regular con, anything from a regular conference to a fan con tend to be pretty lame also. You know, like panels, like panels are the worst. Like panels are a terrible way to learn about things. They are super boring, even if they're on interesting subjects. Uh, um, they're just so uncompelling. And so we thought, change the context. And cruises, it turns out, are a great way to get a big group of people together that all like the same thing and all want to connect with each other in a a place that's really nice, um, that has a lot to do, and isn't crazily expensive. I mean, one of the things is, like, if you put on a convention at a hotel or whatever... This this is uh, this is opaque to the people who are buying tickets, but um, you know, just giving people a dinner costs about seventy five dollars a person. So there's no way to make that reasonably priced. Whereas on a cruise ship, the food's actually pretty good, definitely better than in a hotel conference room, and uh, and it's and it's relatively affordable. I mean, you know, our cruise is under a thousand bucks, so you know, it costs about what you would pay to go on a vacation, only. It's also this really cool thing. It does sound cool, actually. I can imagine because I know that um, Jonathan Colton does a cruise as well, right? So there is, there yeah. Is a, I talk, I actually talked a lot to Col- Col- Colton's a good friend of mine, um, who's actually been at Max Funcon as well, and I talked to talked to him a lot about um, about about how he set things up. And you know what he's found is that there's this community of people that go on the cruise every year. And, you know, they're there as much to see each other as to see him. And his world is a little bit different from my world. I mean, his world is somewhat more geek-specific, whereas ours is maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, his his world is a little bit more, well, it's a little bit more Jonathan Colton, but I was going to say, you know, uh, they might be giants or, or, um, uh, or, you know, Weird Al or whatever. Our world is maybe a little more daily show. Um, but you know, we, I, I openly, I, I literally called Jonathan to say like, Hey, is, is it okay if I do a cruise? (laughs) Because I'll basically just be copying you. (laughs) (laughs) But we, we have a really cool thing. I mean, we have, um, 
Hodgman's going to be on ours. He does go on Jonathan Colton's cruise. John Hodgman from the from the Daily Show and so forth. Uh, Al Madrigal, who's on, also on the Daily Show. Uh, Kristen Schaal from Flight of the Concords and the Muppet Movie and so on and so forth. With with her uh, brilliant comedy partner Kurt Brownoller. Um, we've got on the music side John Roderick, who does with Merle Mann actually, mm-hmm. um, but is also a, a, a well known indie singer songwriter with his band the, the Long Winters. Dan Deacon, who's an awesome indie electronica guy, um, Nellie Mackay, who is a sort of uh, retro, circa 1948 singer-songwriter. Um, it, it's going to be, oh, uh, 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 the Mountain Goats also, John Darnell, um, amazing, brilliant singer-songwriter. So it's going to be quite the extravaganza, I think. It does indeed sound that way. There's some, some great My- people going to be on that boat. And shuffleboard. We also have promised a shuffleboard tournament I got my buddy Chuck, my buddy Chuck Bryant from uh, the Stuff You Should Know podcast called me and asked if he could come, and I'm like, we have to think of something for you to do. And he's and so our fallback, if we can't think of anything better, is he'll just be in charge of the shuffleboard tournament. So I have one last question before I let you go today. Sure. Um, to, you know, we've we've looked a lot, I think, today about a different, a very different business model um, for podcasting in, in what what you guys are trying to create. What do you think is the future for, for for podcasting to be a viable medium? Do you think that that there will be um, more people that will be able to do what you guys do, or do you think it will be and will remain and maybe grow more advertising based? I think that um, I think in the long term, there are two things that that are happening that need to happen for it to continue to grow. One is the interfaces need to get simpler and simpler. Um, right now, right now, podcasts are still pretty complicated to listen to. There are, there are smartphone apps that are pretty good. I know a lot of people like Downcast, a lot of people like Stitcher. Um, and I think they're definitely in the right direction. And even Apple's, uh, a podcasting app, which has been much derided is still, I think a step in the right direction. And I, I can only imagine that Apple. Uh, get it right the second time out, you know, um, and so that has to happen, and it has to. They have to get into cars. The other thing is the people who buy advertising have to get more comfortable with podcasts, and I think that digital advertising generally um, only made traditional advertising buyers comfortable by saying, "Here is a chart that proves conclusively uh, that you are selling X number of things based on X number of clicks." And that will never happen with podcasting. No. So I think it will just take some time for <laughs> basically for the old people to die off, but also for people to get comfortable with a new medium and what its values are. Because podcasting advertising is, is immensely valuable because people have a really, a really deep connection with podcasters that yes. they don't have with people in any other medium, not, not even radio. Um, and certainly not TV or, or anything else. So I, I think those are the two things that are happening that need to continue to happen. But generally, you know, I think, you know, it's funny because it's kind of in between. You know, you can run a blog that's pretty interesting without being a great writer, but it's harder to make a good podcast uh, without being a good broadcaster. Um, and, you, you know, obviously I use broadcaster to, to mean to include podcasting. But, <laughs> It's it's a little more performative, requires a little more technical skill, 
you just have to be a little bit better than you do with a blog. However, it still has that internet quality of the most important thing is, is someone really passionate about some thing? And for people like that, I think something like what we do may end up being how they do it. I mean, the other thing is, you know, I mean, if you look at blogs and social media as an extension of, of blog-like ideas, I think you'll continue to find that a lot of people don't do it as a business and they're fine with that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, honestly. Neither do I. And, and that's the perfect way to wrap it up. Jesse, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, tell people where they can go to, to find you and to keep in touch with you. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you want to check out, check out our shows, um, you can either search for Maximum Fun in iTunes or go to MaximumFun.org and you can check out like my, my NPR show, Bullseye, which is on a fair number of NPR stations around the country as well. Well, um, and uh, if you want to learn about menswear, you can go to PutThisOn.com. Uh, I promise you it's, it's, uh, it's not judgmental. And, um, and if you want to come on the cruise, shoot, you want to come hang out with uh, me and my comedian buddies, uh, go to BoatParty.biz which is the real website of a real event, boatparty.biz. <laughs> You're the only person in 2013 to buy a .biz domain name. Oh, man. When I thought, <laughs> I'll tell you, man. When I thought of boatparty.biz, I was literally dancing around the office. I was so excited about that URL. <laughs> because Atlantic, Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival.com was probably available, but that's not very catchy. It hasn't got Whereas a ring to it. Is, Boatparty.biz, that's like the greatest URL ever. <laughs> <laughs> I am inclined to agree. Um, thank, again, thank you for joining me today, Jesse. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. Um, I am Mike Hurley. You can find me on social networks. I am iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. And we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.